0: Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Like I said, we've got a lot to cover. We're going to jump into verse 11, and we're going to cover the rest of chapter 2. If you're new, we're in a series called Not Our Home, because that's the big deal, that's the big idea, that's the big message in the book of 1 Peter. Peter is writing to a small group of persecuted Christians uh, in a really, not a post-Christian world, but a pre-Christian world, and he's telling them how they are to live. And I want to show you this, because he brings it up again in verse Verse 11. Everything we teach here arises right out of Scripture. I'm not giving you my ideas, but God's Word. I want you to see this. Verse 11. Beloved. In other words, you are loved by God, and you need to know that. This is what Peter wants you to know. You're loved by God. Why would you need to know you're loved by God? Because you are misunderstood in this world. He's going to say this. I urge you. Now, the old KJV would say, I beseech you. Okay, that's a great, great word. It's like, I emotionally want to tell you and push you towards something. Here's what it is. I urge you as sojourners. Now, what is a sojourn? The Greek word literally means a person who walks alongside the house. That's what it means. You go, well, that's a weird word. It means somebody who walks alongside or lives alongside the house. Here's what it means. That as Christians, we live in a world where the people around us have made it our home and we can't do that. But he says, what do you do then? Well, you live as, look at what he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that means resident aliens, it means visitors who are passing through with purpose. It means that we are this mixture of, we have a deep appreciation for our culture, yet we can't fully assimilate into it. Because every culture, every society is made by people in God's image, that are broken and fallen and sinful, it will always have things which we can commend and things in which we have to confront. And so he's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to live like that. I want you to live like a soul, you're loved by God, but you are a sojourner in exile. And then here's what he says. Here's what you need to do in this world. You need to abstain from the passions of the flesh. We'll talk about that tonight. Which wage war against your soul. It's like your enemy is not your spouse. Your enemy is not your boss. Your enemy is not the government. It's like your enemy is the old man, the old passions of your flesh. And so he's saying you need to wage war there. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles, just in that text, means non-Christians. So, okay, how do you live among non-Christians? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then he's going to give us the big idea for this passage, the big idea for this sermon. Here's what he's, look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You see it in the first, in chapter 13, the second word is subject, or we would say submission. Submission. That the big idea today is that this place is not our home, but it is a place to live under authority that God has placed before us. This place is not our home, but it is a place to live under authority. Now, that means, and this is very interesting, and I didn't fully know this. I, I look over the books before, you know, like I study First Peter to some degree before I'm ready to preach it, but I never study it to the degree I do once I'm about to preach it. So I'm getting in this and what I've realized is that for the rest of the book, one of the main themes, if not the main theme pushing us through the rest of the book is submission. Now how many of you are excited about that? (laughs) Woo! You're like, I came to the four o'clock service and he's preaching on submission. Okay, no, here's what, see, this is very interesting. This is one of the reasons convictionally and confessionally, why do we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, line by line? Because it makes us deal with things we otherwise would never deal with. See, there's a very, 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 it's like, we don't know how old this idea is. There's a very, very old idea that says this, what you most need to find is where you least want to look. Just think about that. What you most need to find is where you, well, it's like where you least want to look. Why is that? Because you've looked everywhere else. Because it's exactly what you've been avoiding and ignoring. And it's like, that's why the scripture is so helpful, because it reveals the character and nature of God and how we are to live, and it confronts us with things we otherwise wouldn't want to think about. So together as a church, really, for the, for the next several weeks, we're going to look at this idea of submission. Now today, we're going to cover three areas. Our submission to God, our submission to government, and our submission at work. That's all of chapter two. And then in chapter three, it's going to be wives submit to your husbands. And, and people get that and they get all frustrated because they don't read chapter two that says everybody is un, in submission to some authority. In fact, the most dangerous man is a man who's not under authority. The mo- it's like a dad that has no other authority, dangerous. A, a husband who's not connected to a church, not under any kind of authority, a rogue person, very, very dangerous. And so the whole idea is that everybody is to be under authority and everybody is to submit. Now let me define terms. What is submission? Submission is not slavery. Here's submission. Recognizing and respecting God's authority, wherever it is. It's recognizing and respecting. Often it, it implies also obedience. But it's like that's what Christians do. Christians are good citizens. Whether we're at home. It's like what are teenagers? It's like teenagers or any kid in the home should respect God's authority in the home, which is parents. You walk into work and you respect it. It's like, And you have to realize, authority is everywhere. Let me just define authority real quick. Authority is the ability to make decisions that affect others for good or bad. Authority is the ability to make decisions for good or bad that affect other people. That's what it is, and and here's why I get excited about teaching this, because so many of you are young, especially in this service, in our 545 service, and you are at the very beginning of your building your family and building your career. And, And this means that as you get older, if you have any competency, if you have any capacity, if you have any work ethic, you're going to find yourself with more and more authority. And you're going to have more and more people that are under you, that you are responsible for, that your decisions affect for good and bad. So, so listen to this on both sides. Listen as one who is under authority, which is everybody, and listen as one who, as soon as you have a kid, you're in authority. So every parent has authority while the kid's in the home. And so what we're going to do is tonight look at this topic, and we've got to first ask this question. Why don't we like to talk about authority and submission? Why, when I bring it up, does your internal lawyer just kind of come up into your head and go, mm-mm, I don't like this. I, I, whatever he's going to say, I'm not really going to listen to it. Well, so let me tell you, there's a few reasons I think that we don't like to talk about authority and submission. The first is because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, were just like them. It's like, well, what did God say to Adam and Eve? God said, you can eat from any tree any tree in the garden, except for one. In other words, hey, would you please submit to me? I'm the authority in this garden. I'm going to give you a lot of freedom. That's what good people in authority do. I'm going to give you a lot of freedom, some guardrails, lots of yeses, little bit of nos. And what do Adam and Eve do? Instead, they say, no, no, no. They do. This is what we all do. Oh, I know better than God. And they buck against authority and they no longer submit to God. And guess what? It didn't go well for them. And it's like, actually, what happened is because it didn't go well for them, it doesn't go well for any of us because we're connected to them. And this is another principle to realize that when you don't obey authority in your life and submit to it properly, it ends up affecting everybody else who's under you. So that's one reason. Here's the second reason. We're very, very prideful people. Whether it's the government, whether we think about the government, whether we think about school, we often think of this phrase, if I were in charge, I would do it better. It doesn't matter which candidate's in office. It doesn't matter which party's in office. We're like if I was in the White House I'd fix those problems. It's like no you would not. Definitely you would not. <laughs> the place would probably be in a let's be honest, the place would be in a worse situation. Like somebody who says that knows nothing about leadership. Cuz life is very hard. People are very complicated. Situations and problems are very complex. And what I have found, the more leaders I'm around, I realize most people are trying their best. Yes, authority can be corrupted, but for the most part, people are trying their best to lead people and do a good job. Here's the third reason that we buck against authority. It's the American spirit, the Amer-I-can spirit, okay, if I, I can say it that way. Um, and what I mean by that is, I mean, our entire nation was started, it, it's got kind of a rebellious root to it, right? Just ask the British, Okay. It, it was all about us kind of rebelling and bucking against authority, which, which leads to the fourth thing: that somehow in America it has become cool to rebel against authority. A lot of historians look back to the '60s, but it's become cool to kind of rebel against your parents, blaze your own trail, you know, do the opposite of what you're told. But here's another reason why people buck against authority and don't want to submit they've had a bad experience with authority. Your dad was overbearing. You know, your pastor uses authority and spiritual authority wrongly. Uh, your, your boss was a jerk, and he never gave you a break. It's like, for, for all of those reasons, what I want us to do is I want us to look at what Peter is going to teach us. Peter's going to give us four different types of submission, four types of submission that we should practice and that every Christian should practice um, every day. So let's look at this, starting in verse 11. We'll go back to verse 11. Here's what he says. Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The first submission is the submission of your soul to God. That's where everything begins. And I want to talk about this because what he says is that there is an internal spiritual warfare going on. And you've experienced this most likely today. (laughs) Um, If you haven't experienced it today, you probably experienced it this weekend. And it's every time your old sinful desires come in contact with your new life in Christ. What the Bible calls the old man or the old woman comes in contact with your new life in Christ. And there's this great tension. And by the way, if you don't feel that tension, it might be because you're not a Christian. It might be because you're just doing whatever you want to do. But he talks about how there's this deep internal battle that we must fight for our soul. And really, the big idea here is that not everything that feels good for your body is good for your soul. And that there is an immaterial, invisible, eternal part of you called your soul that you can actually do damage to. And you know this, when you've given in to the passions of your flesh, which, by the way, that's often trying to fill a legitimate appetite in an illegitimate way. But whenever you give in to the passions of your flesh, what Peter's telling us is your soul becomes sick it becomes weak, and it becomes ineffective. And I heard a a pastor, he talked about this. He he was sharing about 30 years of ministry he he was celebrating. And he said, he was telling his church, he said, I looked back on the 30 years that I've been here, and I realized that the three times where our church was not doing well, when I look back and I kind of trace the map of the church not doing well, and I go back onto my own life, it was the times where I was the most spiritually unhealthy. See, See, the greatest thing that you can give your non-Christian neighbor or your Christian brother or your spouse or your son and daughter is a fully committed, spiritually healthy you. And he's saying there's this internal battle, and I want you to see what he says. It's which wage war against your soul. It's not just a battle, it's a war. Every commentary I looked at said this word means a consistent, constant, comprehensive series of battles. here's where that can be, I think, pastorally encouraging. You're going to lose some battles, but overall you need to win the war. And what happens for a lot of people, and this happened to you this week, I'm sure, you lost a battle. You got sinfully angry at your spouse again. You gave in to some lustful desire in your heart. It's like you, in some way, you gave in and you lost a battle. You gave back into some addiction or habit or whatever it was. And here's what happens. when you you lose a battle, here's what you need to do. You need to repent of your sin. You need to confess it. Maybe you need to confess it to somebody, but you need to confess it to God. You need to receive the grace of God and you need to move on. Too many people, they're way too hard on themselves. Now, maybe you're not hard enough on yourself on sin and and you need to be more hard, okay? We take sin very seriously here. All I mean is I've seen so many men and so many women become so ineffective in ministry because of something that happened in their life or something they did weeks ago or months ago and they become immobilized. See, the principle when dealing with yourself and with dealing with your kids and with dealing with your disciples, and when you deal with anybody uh, who sins, uh, uh, here's the principle. Minimal necessary force. I want want the minimal necessary force on myself so I learn my lesson and move forward. This is why the Proverbs say, a righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up. Seven in the Bible is the number meaning again and again and again and again and again. The key is getting back up. Why? Why? because you have a ministry. Look at verse 12. Here's what he's saying in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's saying this, you have to fight the battle within if you're going to fight the war within if you're going to have a witness without and that what, what happens is, he, he even says, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, he even says that you're going to get, you're going to suffer persecution. And it's like, you can't deal with all the suffering that's going to happen outside of you if you're not fighting the battle inside of you. In other words, you, you can deal with a lot of things that are going on, and a lot of people misunderstanding you, and a lot of people persecuting you. If you know in your heart of hearts, you're trying to repent of your sin. And you really love Christ, and you're trying to pursue him failingly, you're stumbling uphill, and it's really, really hard, but you're doing it. But if at the end of the day, you're getting all this persecution, you're like, I don't really believe this anyway. I'm not really, it's not affecting my private, my personal life, I'm not repenting of my sin, then you're going to collapse. That what you need to do is you need to be fighting the battle within. This is why, by the way, Paul, when, it's so interesting. Whenever Paul, would, when he would share his testimony, he would um, get in front of uh, great leaders. This is more at the end of the book of Acts. He says, this, look, look for this next time. He says this constant phrase, my conscience is clear before God. What did I make? Can you say that? It's like, my conscience is clear. I'm trying to, I don't want your money. That's what Paul would say. I don't want your money. I've dealt with that issue. That's not what this is about. This is not selfish. I want what's best for you. I've dealt with the selfish things in my heart. And you can really begin to move out toward people in a meaningful way when you've dealt with the idols in your own heart. That's the big idea here. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to live in such a way that it's beautiful to other people. See, it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That literally means beautiful or attractive. See, the Christian Christianity is offensive when preached, beautiful when lived. When, when you preach on repentance, it, it's, it's offensive because it, it attacks our narcissism. But when you see somebody living a life of repentance and humility, it's attractive. When you talk about biblical marriage and headship and submission and sacrifice, it's offensive until you get to go in the home where that's lived out. And then you're like, "Can I? do you have an extra bedroom? I'd like to live here. Because it's so beautiful. And he's saying it's such a beautiful thing. But he said, when you do that, he said people are going to speak evil against you. I want you to see this. Look what he says. You're going to live a beautiful life so that when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, but when. Part of what Christianity does, and I love this, and the Bible does is it's very honest with you, so you are not surprised by suffering. You shouldn't be if you're reading the Bible. And what, one of the great dangers that, that happens in people's lives is being naive. naive is, being naive is not a biblical virtue at all. In fact, this is very, very interesting. They've clinically shown this that not in every case, but in many cases, people who get post-dramatic stress disorder, PTSD, they had two things happen. They were very, very naive, and they experienced an evil person. So they're like, I didn't know know people could do that. I didn't know men were like that. I didn't know those kind of things happened. And so we're very, very compassionate on on those people that have those things happen to them. But, but there's no way to keep you away from all of the evil and malevolence and pain that's going to happen in your life. So what do you do? You stop being ignorant about it. You stop being naive. You want to be innocent of evil, but never naive of evil. And so what you do is you prepare yourself. And so it says, look, people are going to speak evil against you. Let me tell you why they're going to speak evil against you. I'll tell you right now. They're going to speak evil against you because they don't understand you. That's one reason people speak evil. By the way, we're always, all of us, Christians, non-Christians, we're always hardest on the things we don't understand. And so this happened, you may not know this, the early Christians, they were called cannibals. you go, why were they called that? Well, they didn't understand that actually what was happening was uh, they were eating, they, they, you know, they, they understood the Lord's Supper, the people of that day, they thought, oh, they were eating the literal blood and body of Christ. No, they weren't. It was symbolic, but they were called cannibals. They were called incestuous. Well, you go, well, why was that? Well, because the language of brother and sister was never used outside of the family, except for Christians. They started to call each other brothers and sisters, and it was very confusing. They were called, believe this or not, they were called atheists. Why were they called atheists? Because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods. What will you be called today? Intolerant and unloving. Well, why? Are you intolerant and unloving? No, no, no. It's because you can't affirm and approve and celebrate all lifestyles, perspectives, and ideologies. And you're going to be called intolerant and unloving, but you're not, because what love means is love is a commitment to another person's good. And I'm not allowed to say Christ didn't need to die for that. That's not a loving thing to say. The loving thing to say is Christ did need to die for that. Christ needed to die for my sins, and I'm going to start with my repentance first. So, so sometimes they're going to speak evil because they misunderstand you. They, they don't understand you. Uh, sometimes they're going to speak evil against you because they disagree with you. Because they actually know what you believe, and because you believe something instead of everything, they're going to pick on you. Because you say that there's only one way to God, they're going to not like that. Because you're going to say that Christ had to die for every sin, and you need to repent of every sin. They're not going to like that. And we have to get to the place. We have to be part of growing up, by the way. And you know this. If any of us have kids, one of the growing up moments in a kid's life is they go to school, and they meet somebody, and they realize. Usually this happens late elementary school, early middle school. It's, it's, it's a developmental stage. Oh, there's people who think differently than me. You know, And then it's, then it's like, wait a second, there's people... Who, whose parents think differently than my parents. Wow. And it's, if you've ever been in an environment where everybody starts thinking differently than you, it's overwhelming. This is why we tend to want to be around people who agree with us. But we have to love people enough and be confident enough in what we believe that people may not like us. They may disagree with us. So, I mean, here, here, let me give you a couple examples. I've seen situations and these are real practical today on, on, on how do people speak evil. Uh, I've known couples who decided to remain sexually pure and not cohabitate and wait till marriage, and both sides of their parents think they're foolish. Why don't you live together? Why don't you sleep together first? So, well, we're trying to live a Christian life. Oh, that's silly. I mean, I, I've literally seen parents do that to their kids, and the kids are kind of wrestled with this. I, I've seen women who say, you know, I think I'd like to stay home and be a mom. Is that okay? No, it's not okay. Waste your education? Well, I have some convictions. I'd really like to be invested and involved in my kid's life, especially when they're, oh, why would you do that? That's old-fashioned. Well, well I actually have some convictions. Other women, women, they say, well, I'm at work, but my family's still going to be the priority because the priority for every man and woman who has part of a family is for the family to be the first priority. So I'm not going to, well, why wouldn't you take that promotion? Why wouldn't you travel more? Well, cause I've got some convictions that I'd wanna be with my family a little bit more. Well, you're never gonna make it ahead then. See what I'm saying? Now, here's a third reason that people will speak evil against you. They simply don't like you. <laughs> and that's all I have to say about that point. Okay, that's it. <laughs> I got no other thing, but it's true. And that's okay, some people are gonna like you. Work on your personality, okay? <laughs> have a sense of humor, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, Fourth reason is some people have had bad experience with Christians. Or better, maybe a clearer way to say it is they've had bad experience with religious people. Usually that's what that means. You know, well, I used to go to church. I was at Catholic school. You know, I knew this family in my neighborhood. And usually what they've had a, 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 uh, interaction with is a religious person. And by the way, here we really try to do this a lot. We try to call people to repent both of their rebellion and their religion. And those are two different, it's like rebellious come, people come in and they're like, oh, I know I'm a sinner. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm clear on that. Well, you, okay, you need to repent of that. And then religious people come in and go, aren't I great? No, you're not. You need to repent of that. Okay. That, and that's, that's kind of, because we don't want pe- people thinking that what we're trying to do is convert them to religion. We're not. We're trying to convert them to Christ. So he says that people will speak evil against you. Well, what do you do? Well, you have to have a, a large enough future vision because I want you to see what he says in verse, at the end of verse 12. All of this arises right out of scripture. He says, okay, they're going to speak evil against you even though you're living a beautiful life. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, this is interesting. What is the day of visitation? In the Bible, that's used two ways. The day of visitation is either the day of God's judgment or the day of God's salvation. In this passage, it's not the day of God's judgment. It's the day that God comes to save God an individual person who's heard the gospel and they respond and God saves them. And this is so powerful. What, what he's saying is that if you will be faithful, you have, you, you have to have a longer vision than I want to be liked right now. That's a, not a great value in life. It's not a, you're not gonna make it very far if your goal in life is to be liked by everybody right now. But if you're like, well, maybe I need to have some hard conversations so that sometime, maybe later in my life, this person will thank me for my faithful ministry to him or her, even when they didn't like it. I, I kind of picture maybe your dad says to you, "Hey, you know, I know every Thanksgiving you talk to me about Christ, and I never wanted to hear it, and I got angry." But later I've come to Christ, and I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for being faithful to be kind to me when I made life difficult for you. So the person who says, "Hey, you, and I know you were inviting me to church, and I know I said no like a hundred times, and I was kind of rude about how I said no." Like, like I actually heard a story. I haven't told this in the other services, I just came to me right now. I knew a pastor, and he said the first time someone shared the gospel with him, it was a young girl on a college campus, and he said he was this arrogant young man. I know this guy. This is a true story. He said this girl comes up to him, and she shares the tr- a track with him and says, I'd like to share with you about Christ. He said, give me that track. She gives it to him. He said, open your mouth, and he shoved it in her mouth. He told me that story. I was like, you're crazy. He's now a pastor of a large church. And he probably doesn't have an opportunity to go back to her and say, you know, <laughs> in heaven, he'll apologize, okay? Um, but, but, but you get the idea. It's like, well, wow, based on that first response, I didn't think, he, you know, he would ever come back and thank me. But he still remembers and talks about that. Think about the Apostle Paul. So the whole idea is be the type of person later in life other people might thank for your faithful ministry even though it didn't look fruitful in the moment. All that was the first type of submission. The last few will be much shorter. Secondly, your submission for the Lord's sake to the government. Here's what he says: Be subject for the Lord's sake. In other words, um, submission and government are God's idea. By the way, if, if you're interested, why did God create the government? There's three main purposes: order. The second purpose is to execute justice. The third purpose is to restrain evil. That's why the government exists. You're like, you're grateful for highways, aren't you? That's order. You couldn't get from here to California or here to your vacation this summer without the organization of the government. You're really, really grateful for justice. When something needs to happen, when somebody's at your door banging and you've got to call the police, you're going to be really, really grateful for the government. And the restraining evil power just means because there is law and because there is justice, people are not as bad as they could be. So that's, that, those are at least, there's many, many more purposes to government than that. Those are the three kind of biblical purposes. And here's what he says. Be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be the emperor, and by the way, that was Nero at the time, so a terrible guy, as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So as soon as we talk about government, people are like, well, I don't even like my government. okay. It didn't say like your government, it says submit to your government. You know, and it didn't say just submit to your government if you like the politician or it's your political party. It's to be a posture of obedience. In fact, look what he says in verse 16, he goes on to talk about honoring. Here's what he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. See, what he's saying here is that in the way we talk, we need to honor our governmental officials. That would be both Donald Trump and Barack Obama. That would be both uh, Joe Biden uh, and Mike Pence. And when I say it, I mean, some of you are like, I'll tell them what I think. It's like, hold on. You know? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's to talk about your government officials in such a way to realize, here's the idea. The idea, it's a a military idea. There's a a phrase in the military, you salute the uniform when you can't salute the man. And you respect the office when you don't necessarily respect the man or woman who holds that office. That's the big idea. And the government's very, very important. Let me explain this too, because a lot of churches don't understand this. A lot of church members don't understand, a lot of pastors don't understand this, that the... The church deals with the soul. The government is to deal with the body. And here's what I mean by that. So say God forbid this would ever happen. But if we found out that there was somebody in our church that was abusing somebody, we would call this person in. We would call them to repent. We would warn them of God's judgment. We would take away any leadership responsibilities they had. We would discipline them appropriately as as the church. And then we would call the authorities to take them to jail. Because we deal with the soul, but the government deals with the body. So many times a church just deals with the soul and forgets, no, 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 we got to call the government to deal with the body. Both are important and both kind of fit in together as we deal with, minister to, care for people. So how does civil disobedience work into all this? Because that's a great question people often have. You know, we're so grateful for things like the civil rights movement. But how does, well, let me just tell you the principle of civil disobedience, because it comes up every time you talk about the government. Um, <clears throat> civil disobedience says, I will obey my earthly authority until it conflicts with my heavenly authority. Or I will obey the law unless commanded to sin. That, that's, the, that's civil disobedience. And here's what's interesting. If, if you read from, from Genesis to Revelation, and you look at civil, the, the idea of civil disobedience, uh, you're only going to find two examples in the Old Testament. First, you're going to find the midwives. The midwives, in, uh, in the story of Moses, they were commanded to kill children, and they said no, they wouldn't do it, and said God praised them for that. That was civil disobedience. Uh, there, there's an example of Daniel saying um, he was asked to eat meat. He said, I can't do that. Can I eat vegetables? That was an issue of civil disobedience. Uh, in the New Testament, there's only one issue of civil disobedience. There's the apostles in Acts 4 and 5 preaching. They're confronted. They say, we can't listen to you. They're told not to preach anymore. They said, we we have to obey God instead of you. We're going to continue to preach. So what does this mean about civil disobedience? It means that for the most part, you never have an excuse to be civil disobedient. And there's always that one person who's up late and they're they're on the internet and they're reading about how they don't have to pay their taxes, okay? (laughs) There's, you know, I I don't need to pay, no, no, you definitely need to pay your taxes. Jesus said pay your taxes, okay? Um, But here's what I want to just talk about just for a minute and it won't take too long, but part of my role and responsibility as one of the pastors here, along with the staff, is to try to warn of, of dangers we see potentially happening. And we'll get to this in a moment as we talk about the workplace as well, but one of the great dangers I see is, and really I've learned this from men and women much smarter, much farther ahead than me. I probably wouldn't be aware of this if it wasn't for others, is the confrontation between religious liberty and sexual liberty that's happening in our culture right now. So if you don't know this, and this isn't a a Republican thing. This isn't a Democrat thing. This is a a Christian thing, by the way. Think about it. What did God send Moses to say to Pharaoh? Let my people go that they may worship me. Religious liberty, this is so important. Christians have to think right about this. Religious liberty is your first and most foundational freedom. It's even more important than freedom of speech. And you go, why? Because if you can't believe what you want to believe, then it doesn't matter if you talk. It's like, believe me, this is important. This is like, I'm trying to talk about this. This is super important, religious liberty. And, and, and we actually believe in religious liberty. Hear me, because it's going to sound heretical for just a moment. Um, we believe in religious liberty for all religions. What do we? What I mean by that is, we believe Christians believe in pr- pluralism, not relativism. And by the way, if you'll talk to your coworkers about this, and they'll be confused because it's it's so comprehensive what you believe. Here's what you believe here's what Christians believe. We don't believe in relativism. Relativism is all belief systems are equally valid. They're not. You can't say the moon is made of cheese and the moon is made of rock and then be equally valid. They're not both equally valid. Pluralism is different. Pluralism says everybody should have a voice at the table. Every idea and belief should be able to be presented and believed. That's actually what we believe as Christians. We actually believe that we have the truth, therefore we're not afraid. And if you put Christianity in the marketplace of ideas, we believe in the long term it wins. And so what's happening, and I'm gonna show you this in a few examples, what's happening is instead of religious liberty being the number one value in our society anymore, because we no longer worship any kind of God, what do we worship? What does our society worship? Well, we worship sex. So then sexual liberty becomes the most important thing. Let me give you an example. There's a, um, there was an op-ed in the New York Times a few weeks ago, and I found out about this through the briefing. I'm not, I wish I was the kind of person who was scrolling through the op-ed section of the New York Times, I'm not that person. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a podcast called The Briefing with Al Mohler where he, he talks about these things. Um, and, and in that article, they write for the New York Times, and, and the person says, um, if, you're entering the, if you're gonna be a doctor and you don't wanna perform, uh, gender reassignment surgeries you may want to do have a different profession. Do you understand what's happening? The sexual revolution is so powerful I don't care what you believe it submits. Whoa, I mean that's a completely different thing there, There's whole areas in um, there, there's a and I, for, I, the name's not coming right now there's a law school in Canada that has as, as a statement, the view on traditional marriage, which is what Christians believe for 2,000 years and what everyone believed until 10 years ago, on defining marriage, one man, one woman, one lifetime. Well, the Canadian government said, oh, if that's how you're gonna define marriage, then anyone who graduates from that law school doesn't get to practice law in Canada anymore. So what's happening is they're, act- this is so important, they're, there's, and I'm not a doomsday person by any means, but there are becoming certain professions where they're saying it would be best if Christians would not be a part of these professions. There's whole things that say, if you're gonna be an OBGYN doctor, you better perform abortions or you better get in another, another, you better choose a different track. And, and so we have to be, we want to be, we're gonna see in a second, we want to learn how to suffer well. We want to be humble, we want to be winsome. But we need to know that these things are happening. Which leads us to the third type of submission, which is submission at work. Servants be subject, this is verse 18 of chapter 2. Servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let me say just one thing real quickly. This passage has wrongly been used to justify slavery in the past. And the Bible itself said people will take the scriptures and they will twist them to their own destruction. Uh, This passage uh, was wrongly used to justify slavery. Slavery is a sin. Slavery is wrong. Slavery is an assault on the image of God in Genesis 1 that every person has. And slavery goes against the main message of the Bible, which is God sets the prisoner free. God sets free the slave. And so this has wrongly been used. In fact, the word servant there doesn't even mean slave. It means an indentured servant. Often these were doctors, these were lawyers. Um, These were people of very good professions who were still under the authority of somebody else. Here's what it says that they are to be subject to their masters. Here's the big idea. We don't have a lot of time to talk about this this, this little section. The big idea is to be a great employee. It's like don't open your mouth and tell people about Jesus Christ if you're not first a great employee at your work. Be the type of employee that your boss says to you six months into your job. Is there anybody at your church who'd wanna work here? That's what you wanna do. You You wanna work in such a way that as you're working hard, People are seeing a difference. Maybe you come early, maybe you stay late. Maybe you're a great team person. Maybe you just do something like you, you, you tell the truth. You work well together with others. It also means to be a great boss. You know, it's really interesting when if you go back and you read, when the people came to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was doing all this preaching. It's, you go read it. What he was preaching to the people, he, he goes, Here's what I want you to do. This is my translation of John the Baptist. He's preaching to a bunch of people in authority, and he says, pay your workers well. Whoa, yeah, and, and take care of their vacation. And, and begin to think and care for those under you because you are under authority. And, and here's what he's saying. He's saying at work, what's going to happen is you're going to be, begin to suffer unjustly. Look, I want you to see this. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, he goes into this. Uh, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So there's two types of suffering, just suffering and unjust suffering. Just suffering is when you suffer because of your sin. And that's a very painful thing, but it happens. It's like, well, you stole from work, so you lost your job. So now you don't have an income, and you can't get another job, and you have a bad reputation. It's like, well, God will forgive you, and God will be gracious, and God will restore you, but the worst type of suffering in some ways, at least psychologically, the worst type of suffering is the suffering you've brought upon yourself that didn't need to happen but happened because of your sin and foolishness. And the Bible calls that just suffering. But there's unjust suffering. Unjust suffering is when you suffer uh, because somebody else is sinning toward you. And he's saying that this is going to happen, this was happening, this does happen in the work environment. I was talking to someone this last week, I need to be careful, but I was talking to someone this last week, and this person was telling me that they had to go to a diversity training thing. And I've talked about these before, they make me sick. It's where they go to tell everybody that every lifestyle and perspective and ideology is the exact same, and all we need to do is praise and celebrate everybody's lifestyles. And they do this for days. This person told me this went on for several days. She said, finally, there was somebody in my my group that raised her hand, and she was so bold to say to the instructor, after you're teaching on this stuff, I feel really bad for being a Christian. And she said, the lady looked at her and goes, you should. That happened in our city. And so this is the idea of unjust suffering. You begin to suffer for what you believe or often for how you're behaving. Oh, you know, someone comes to you, hey, what I need you to do is I need you to fudge the numbers. Well, I can't do that. Well, I need you to go on the sales call, but I need you to kind of fudge what's going on and overpromise un- overpromise and underdeliver, and, you know, all this kind of, tell them that it's going to be here in this day, but it really won't be here by this day. Well, I can't do that. I need to be truthful. Well, then there's not a place for you. And what he's saying is he's saying we need to be ready for unjust suffering, and he does it by giving us the final type of submission, which is Jesus Christ's submission to God the Father. Christ's submission to the Father for our salvation. This is at the very center of Christianity is the unjust suffering of the Son of God. Jesus Christ was abandoned by his closest friends, betrayed by one of the twelve, received an unjust trial by the leaders of his day, was beaten mercilessly, had to carry his own cross, and then suffered violently, tragically, innocently at a very young age. It is the ultimate tragedy. And and, and here's what he says, and I want you to, verse 21 really should amaze all of us, because look what it says. For to this you have been called, what? What was it? To unjust suffering. It's like, well, I thought I was called to salvation. You were, and also to suffering. And then he says this, uh, because Christ also suffered for you. And it's like, that's what we sing songs about. That's what we celebrate. That's the center of our faith, a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And then he says this, we don't like this part, leaving you an example. That Jesus Christ is not just the object of our faith, but the pattern for our life. He says, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps, verse 22. And then he's going to tell us, this is how... And We're not very good at this. okay? And none of us want to suffer. I'm, just, I'm speaking pastorally. I love you guys. I want you to see this, but, but he's saying, here's how you should walk through unjust suffering. He says, number one, he said he committed no sin. In other words, don't sin in your suffering. What suffering tends to do is it tends to reveal who you really are. And if you do not respond appropriately to, to suffering, it actually corrupts you. And you find yourself, it's like, well, you lost your job and, it was, and it, you shouldn't have. Yeah, but now you're drinking all the time. You're drinking way too much because you didn't know how to deal with it. And your wife doesn't like how much you're drinking, so now your marriage is falling apart. And now she's stressed out, and the kids aren't doing well. And what happens, if we don't respond well to suffering, it corrupts us. And everything in our life gets worse. So don't respond sinfully to being sinned against. Jesus didn't. He committed no sin, Then this is interesting, then it talks about his mouth. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. This is very interesting. Two different things were told about the words of Christ on the cross. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when you're going through suffering, there will be things that will come out of your mouth that you will not even believe and It will be, unfortunately, the real you. And it's a very scary thing to see that. And it's saying... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here's what Jesus Christ, I want to give you the, it's kind of we're closing, the four things Jesus did while he was unjustly suffering, and these are the four things we're to do, and they're all so hard. First, he prayed for those who were causing his pain. That's what he did. You can read the accounts. That's what he did. He prayed for the very people who was persecuting him. Second thing he did, is he asked God to forgive them even while they were persecuting and bringing him pain. And I don't know who's doing something to your life, who's made your life difficult, but could you pray for them and could you ask God to forgive them? Here's the third thing he did. He actually began to care for other people's needs even when he was suffering unjustly. He's being crucified, and when you're crucified, that means that you, that's where we get the word excruciating from. It's the most painful thing you could ever go through. You die by suffocation, And he is dying on the cross and he's helping his mom be taken care of by John. If you know the accounts, he makes sure while he's dying on the cross that his mother will be looked after by his good friend John. One of the things to do when you are suffering is to begin to help other people. And then finally, and maybe most amazingly, he leads the guy next to him to Christ in the midst of his suffering. That actually your light will shine brightest as you respond well and hopeful to the suffering that you're going through. See, what's what's interesting is if you you look at verse 24, and we're going to close here, verse 24 is the final verse, says this, Jesus himself, he himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. What Jesus did is he didn't just carry the cross, he carried all of our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. What he says is this. The way that our salvation was accomplished was through Jesus' submission. And the way that we receive salvation is as we submit our lives to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to give our lives fully to Christ. That's what it means to say Jesus Christ is Lord. I repent and I believe that is the language of submission. And if you just take a moment, I'd love to pray, all of us, bow your heads, and I would just love to ask you that question, just between you and the Lord right now, is as you've heard this, have you ever truly submitted your life to Jesus Christ? What Jesus Christ says to every man and every woman is, would you give me your best and would you give me your worst? Would you give me your worst? Would you give me all of your past and all of your sin and all of your ignorance and all of your foolishness and all of your rebellion? Would you give it all to me? And then also, would you give me your best? Would you give me your life? Would you give me your dreams? Would you give me your future? And what the Christian says is, you made the greatest submission, Lord. You made the greatest sacrifice. I now want to submit my entire life and follow you as Lord and receive forgiveness. If you have never done that, but would like to do that right now, would you raise your hand? If you would say, I've never given my life fully to Jesus Christ, but I want to do that, would you put your hand up right now? Lord, we submit. As a church, I pray that Two Cities Church would be a church that loves to submit. We are, the Bible says, we are a free people who submit. We don't uh, submit because we have to. We submit because we get to. We thank you, Jesus, that you did the greatest submission. You had all authority, yet you gave it up and submitted. Your great prayer, Lord, may it be the same prayer that we pray. Not my will be done, but your will be done. We pray this in your name. Amen.